It's January 1981. In this episode, we begin looking at Atari Magazine's Month by Month and examine the very first analog computing magazine, including an interview with the co-founder of the magazine, Mike DeShane. We'll also take a look at the compute and creative computing issues for this month and review the game Caverns of Mars by Greg Christensen. Also, the best Mars movie, random numbers, some Atari sounds, color clocks, vertical scrolling, and some feedback. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode four. January 1981. We're finally going month by month. This is episode four, and it includes the first analog issue, compute issue number eight, and creative computing volume seven number one. And the game review is Caverns of Mars, first published by APX and then by Atari itself, uh, written by Greg Christensen. And as an extra bonus, I have an interview with Mike DeShane of Analog Computing Magazine. So the big podcast news that I have is that I got an email from Rob O'Hara, who's host of You Don't Know Flack and the co-host of Throwback Reviews, and I am now part of the Throwback Network. So thanks to Rob and Sean Johnson of the Throwback Network for adding me to the collection of podcasts. It's a collection of retro-themed podcasts, mostly computer-related. Other podcasts on the Throwback Network include Ferg, uh, Antic, No Quarter, The Intellivisionaries, and one that I haven't talked about before, but I've listened to for a while, called Ten Pence Arcade. So I'm kind of late catching up on some of the Ten Pence Arcade episodes. Um, I was a few episodes behind, and I got to episode 20, and they mentioned Player Missile podcast. So thanks to Victor and Alex for mentioning the show. Vic was particularly complimentary about my speaking voice, which was very nice to hear. Thanks very much. Their podcast is a lot of fun. It's always fun to listen to them talk and get absorbed in uh, just the British accents. So they are both way better game players than I ever hoped to be. And when they talk about their scores, just kind of nonchalantly throw in the fact, ah, I did all right. I got four million. There's another podcast called McCoycast. And in it, Doug McCoy talks about all sorts of different things. Things that interest him is his theme. In one of the episodes of You Don't Know Flack, the one he talked about uh, podcasting, Doug was a guest on it, and he talked about how he records in a closet to help improve his audio quality. So I'm trying that this time. I'm recording in a closet. So we'll see if my audio quality improves. So the contest is complete over at Ferg's 2600 Game by Game podcast. I was sponsoring a contest to win a copy of Racing the Beam by Nick Monfort and Eden Bogost. It's a great book on the 2600. A lot of the guesses were much higher than what it turned out our combined scores were. So I guess they must have thought we were better game players than we are. As it turns out, the scores on the 800 were much, much lower than the ones on the uh, 2600. On the 800, I broke 1,000 like twice, I think, and my higher score was like 1,200-something. The world record is only like 3,000. Ferg's better than I am, and all the games that I've seen when he's played with the high score club, he's uh, been better than what I've been able to do. I know he's rolled Space Invaders on the 2600, and I only got to like 7,000. And on the 800, Ferg got to 1,340, which beat me by about 100 points. But I don't know, I just must not have been clear enough that I'm really, really bad at games. 
You know, it's like I enjoy playing them, but if, there's not really many games I've really been good at. You know, Tron in the arcades, maybe. And uh, over the summer, I went to the Atari party out here in the Bay Area and uh, played a few arcade games set up. I got something like 20,000 on the Asteroids arcade game, which is, you know, it's not great by any means, but it was the top score on the machine, or at least it was until I left anyway, because, you know, three quarters of the people that were there were too young, and one kid came up to me and said, what's with all the buttons? And another kid, and he said, you're really good, which is exactly the first time anybody's ever said that to me about any game. I got some feedback from uh, Bill Kendrick on Twitter. Bill Kendrick of Atari Party fame. He said, for character set animation, it's even faster having two or more sets predefined and then just pointing them uh, one after the other. So I talked about this last episode uh, for Space Invaders, how they did see him animation. And that's very true. So you can get up to 128 tiles changing in six machine cycles, only two instructions, a load and a store, there is a uh, one kilobyte per character set, and each set must start on an even page boundary. So changing a single character manually costs a minimum of 64 machine cycles if you're in an unrolled loop. So there's about 30,000 cycles in a 60th of a second if you're trying to run 60 frames per second. Each 6502 instruction takes a minimum of two cycles and probably averages more like three or between three and four cycles per instruction. So at most, you're going to get about ten to 15,000 instructions in a 60th of a second. But that's not including antics, stealing uh, DMA access, which it's about a 30% hit. So you might be down to seven to 8,000 instructions. And so if you're changing 10 characters, 64 machine cycles each, you could be looking at like 10% of your time just changing a few characters in the animation. Whereas if, as if Bill said, if you change the whole set you get 128 changes for essentially for free. The only cost is memory, of course. There's one kilobyte per character set, and since each must start on an even page boundary, you're not going to get that many character sets in memory before you just run out. I also got an email from Siegfried Lentz, uh, SLX on Atari Age. He said, I just want to let you know that I enjoy your podcast, which I found via Atari, the Antic podcast. And give you some feedback on your question regarding the development, the developmental aspect of video games. Says with a bleak outlook on life, you could say that old video games are just like life, and you can't win, and you just try to get as far as possible with the highest possible score. I played a lot of games as a teenager, and I, th- I saw those as those always the same games as more of a test of skills, and enjoyed the games. And I enjoyed the games best that allowed you to discover new levels or even have a story or have an end, even if reaching it meant the game would just start over at a higher speed. He says, I remember playing through my favorite Seamus for two and a half times to see if it would change before losing interest as well as a couple of days. Today I don't mind if modern games have continues to save the tedium of playing through well-known terrain just to reach new levels, with sufficient lives left for new discoveries. Yeah, so he mentions continues, and so I, I kind of... I've never, I haven't done this yet, but sometimes I'm exploring using save states of emulators because, like you said, there were a bunch of tedious stages of some games that once you get past, it's just like, oh, it's boring. I don't, don't want to do this again, or it takes too long, or you just did it sort of perfectly the one time and want to continue from there. So I sent an email back to him saying to that effect, and uh, he sent an email back saying, safe states on emulators are certainly practical, although they feel a bit like cheating. <laughs> So, and I, I do really do feel like cheating, but at this point, there's so many games I want to play and I don't have that much time. It's like, I feel like I just like to see the ends of some of these games without starting over and over again. 
Anyway, he continues, It's interesting that the concept of continues or save points along the games never caught on in commercial life of Atari. Although I recall arcade games having continues. And maybe that's have to do with game companies wanting their games to stay interesting for a longer time. Had they been continues, I would have played through Spelunker in an hour. And unless you had someone to compare with, scores were not that important at home as they were in the arcade. Yeah, so I'm still not sure what I think about the developmental aspect of games. You know, how they affect kids growing up. And I mean, I don't think I was that affected by it. I Like Siegfried, I think I was more looking at it as a challenge of skill. and didn't really think about the idea that you can't win ever, ever, ever. I don't know, it will be interesting to see. And I definitely think when I introduce games to my kids, it's not going to be the kind of blowing up games and shooting things, certainly not the violent games. But most of these simple games, you really you, you, do, you can't win, there's no end. And I don't know, I'm still thinking about that. So, if, yeah, more suggestions, let me know. The Intellivisionaries, episode 13, mentioned the podcasts. Thanks very much, guys. This was in their Las Vegas show. I wish I could have made it to the CGE down there, that would have been fun. But it looks like I am going to be able to make it to the Port- Portland Retro Gaming Expo here in uh, October. So definitely looking forward to that. So in their episode, Paul talked about the uh, type-in games. And I'm definitely going to talk about type-in games when we get there, especially the big ones like Livewire, Bacterion, some of those uh, assembly language games in Analog were my favorites. And I really learned a lot trying to read that assembly code. And even in this in this episode, uh, there's a few type-ins that we're going to talk about. So you ask and I deliver. On Atari Age, Paul, who goes by Nermix on Atari Age, said, another thoroughly enjoyable and well-researched episode. Nice outro music choice, too. Gyrus is awesome. I agree. Gyrus is super awesome. Love it, love it, love it. I like the music on the 8-bit even better than the arcades. And part of that maybe is because I played the 8-bit first before the arcades. Something about the thing you hear first is the one you like better after seeing other versions. So I got feedback from friend of the show, Rick. He said, just finished listening to the Space Invaders podcast. And I want to thank you for mentioning my name in the same paragraph as Scientific American. That's never happened before and probably never will again. (laughs) Then he talks about Space Invaders and he says, uh, I'd never seen the Atari computer version before, but now I want to go play it. But what was really interesting was the point of view of how people couldn't win at games. I guess we tried to beat our last score, but still not being able to win is something that could have had an effect on people playing those games back then. And he pointed me to an essay by Harlan Ellison, who's a science fiction writer, and it turns out a bit of a curmudgeonly dude about video games. So he wrote this essay comparing the 2600 game, The Empire Strikes Back, where you know, it's the one where you have a little land speeder and you're trying to blow up the um, AT-AT walkers covered it in episode 8 of his podcast. And so Harlan Ellison compared that game to the myth of Sisyphus, who was the guy doomed to roll the boulder up the mountain only to see it roll back down again, just forever and ever. That was his thing. The basic idea is like, what's the point if you can't win? And I think me, personally, I think as Siegfried said, the point is it's a test of skill. I mean, you know, why do we do anything? Why do we do any game or recreation? What do we get out of a game of cards or chess or darts or something? I suppose, you know, darts or baseball or javelin or sports, you could make a connection to, like, our ancestors using tools and having to hunt for their food. Anything that would help them hunt and stay alive would be useful to practice. But for, you know, just 
pure recreation stuff, why would sports be better than video games? Certainly the argument about physical fitness is valid, but to say that maybe watching sports versus playing Space Invaders, I mean, how is that different? It's recreation. Does there have to be a point? The point is it's a test of skill, but does it have to end to be a valid test of skill? You know, I don't think so. I don't think everything has to be a metaphor for life. Anyway, back to Rick. He touches on another point. He said, I'm thinking about finding an Atari 8-bit computer just for the games, but it got me to wonder, is there any value in coding on the Atari today? For instance, if a kid wanted to learn about programming, is the Atari still a viable way to learn? So, you know, eventually they could work up and program on modern computers. And I think that's a great point. I think, yes, I think there's a, a lot of value on programming in these old computers. Especially if you go to the actual hardware, you know, they boot up in like a second or two. You get the ready prompt, basic is right there, ready to go. Just type in 10 print hello, 20 go to 10, run, and there you got your first program. No compilers, none of the stages of, you know, development environments and setting up all that stuff. Especially on the Atari, you know, you're right there at the edit window, and you can use the arrow keys and just change and edit. There's none of the load and save stuff. It's a great way to learn. I thought about this myself for my own kids. Of course, that would probably mean I'd have to actually get some reliable old hardware. You know, writing on a Raspberry Pi is not the same because then you have to go through the whole boot process and that's, you know, multiple 10, 15 seconds, whatever it is. And then you have to have an auto boot into Atari 800 or something. Or in the actual hardware, just turn it on, you're ready to go. And in terms of more advanced stuff, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of stuff going on in retro programming. For the Ataris, there is the Atari Bitbiter Users Club in Germany. They sponsor this great 10-line game contest where it's, you enter uh, using basic and you, know, the, uh, you try to write a game in only 10 lines of basic. I know Kevin Savitz over the uh, Antic podcast has entered in the last contest. Obviously, the programs end up being you know, totally obfuscated because you have to make a lot of concessions to write stuff in, in 10 lines. But still, I'm sure the original source is you know many, many more lines and more legible basic. And there's still a homebrew scene in the Ataris. I think it's probably bigger on like the consoles, like the 2600 and the Intellivision. But there are still people writing stuff, and I've, I dug out my old software, the stuff I wrote using the Mac 65, and I had sort of the basics of a game, and I'm sort of intrigued. It's like, well, can I make this a workable game? And so I'm kind of thinking maybe as this podcast goes along, I might try to develop that. I don't know if I'd still use Assembler or if I'd use like CC65, which is a cross-compiler. You write in C on your modern machine, and then you can cross-compile it to 6502 code. And CC65 has actually been talked about several times on, like, Retro Computing Roundtable, and I know this past Kansas Fest, Carrington Advanced and did a, a talk on setting up CC65 for the Apple II, but it can target pretty much all the 6502 machines, like Apple II, Atari, C64. So yeah, that might be a, a future project for this for the podcast, and maybe you know, if you had some other ideas for coding up games, we could have a little contest on this podcast. I don't know. We'll see. If you have any ideas, let me know. All right, let's talk about some magazines. The first magazine we're going to talk about is Analog 400-800, issue number one, uh, January-February 1981. The magazine was founded by Mike Deshane and Lee Pappas. It was run out of a house owned by Mike Deshane in uh, downtown Cherry Valley, Mass., which is outside of Worcester, Mass. The name was an acronym, which they came up with first and had to find words to fit. So it was originally conceived to be a newsletter, but the first issue got so big that they decided to go national with it. It was published four times a year for the first two years, um, almost quarterly, not quite. 
It was bi-monthly in 1983, although issue 11 was the first to show an actual month. Previous issues were just by number. So issue 11 was April and May, then issue 12 was July and August, and they had a couple more issues until 1984 when they became mostly monthly, where they only skipped March 84. When the STs came about, they had a, a section for the STs called ST Log, which then started in uh, 1986, but then it was spun off into its own magazine. Um, and I used to get ST Logs, but I couldn't find my the magazines I used to have. Like I mentioned previously, that I can't find my analogs. I also had ST Logs, and I can't find those either. So I didn't remember when it was split into its own magazine. So I asked on Atari Age, and Brian Sturk, uh, user Telengard, looked through his issues and found that it was December 86 that was the first standalone ST Log issue. As an aside, he also has a great write-up of a modular control panel that he made for his main cabinet using metal frames and uh, standard rack mount panels. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes. So back to Analog, there was a six-month gap after the October 87 issue. So the magazine, along with ST-Log, was sold to Larry Flint Publications, and the operations moved to California. Lee Papa stayed on as editor, and Mike Deshane remained in Worcester and opened Master Hobbies, the hobby store that he still owns and operates today. So Analog restarted in April 88, and its last issue was December 89. And Larry Flint Publications had had announced that Analog and ST-Log would be merged together for a big Atari resource, but instead they shut them both down. And the users were given the option to get a refund or move their remaining subscription over to Start Magazine, which was the only major U.S. Atari magazine still in existence. And to get shut down in uh, April 1990. The move of the subscriptions to Start was announced in the November 90 issue of Start. But, spoiler alert, Start only had a few issues left in its run. So you didn't get many more issues out of your money from the expiring analog or SD-log subscriptions. So Mike DeShane was kind enough to take a little time away from his current business, where he runs the hobby shop, Master Hobbies, near Worcester. So here's an interview with Mike DeShane. This interview took place on October 2nd, 2014. Thanks again. Excited to talk to you about it. I don't know how much you want to get into the store, but I'm happy to... It's actually the same place the analog was, so... I know, that's, that's, that's really interesting. So you've kept the building pretty much for the... Yeah, I own, own the building then. I still own it, so once I sold the magazine, I figured it's not enough money to retire, so I might as well find something else to do for a living, so I'll use this money for that. <laughs> and you said you don't really don't really do much computer stuff anymore, right? Uh, we repair computers. We've been repairing computers ever since analog, so we have people almost every day to call us oh, and bring in computers to repair. Mm-hmm. We Still do that. I used to build them a lot, but why build a computer now when you can buy one for $400, You can't. Nobody really wants one. We're actually building one for a guy right now, but usually just upgrades, repairs, mostly get rid of viruses and stuff. Oh, yeah. I had um, two who I thought were customers walking here about six or eight months ago, and they were here because I was the publisher of Analog Computing. They go, are you Mike DeShane's? And I'm thinking, oh, no, what did I do? Yes. <laughs> uh, we used to get analog. We loved the magazine. We wrote a couple articles on it, and they're talking about computers. And he, the guy goes, can I take a picture of you with my friend? And it's like, I guess. <laughs> I'm not going to get that special. So, you know, it's kind of you know, fun. It makes you feel good like you're a celebrity. <laughs> you did something that they enjoyed. So, Yeah, well, you know, I, I certainly 
you know, I felt that way about analog. I really had a lot of good memories, and it really helped me learn about the computer. Yep. And so, I mean, it was a, it was a great, um, yeah, it was a great time back then, just to, oh yeah, to have all that good information come out from analog and antic and compute and all the all the folks. But so, um, I, I sort of I've read a few a few histories and um, you know found some old newspaper articles and stuff. And so, were you always in the sort of Worcester area? Yeah, I was pretty much always. For a few years, I lived in St. Petersburg, Florida. Back when I was in grammar school, probably the fourth or fifth, third or fourth, fifth grade, something like that. But other than that, yeah, so yeah, where I'm sitting now, what was back right here, probably Tom's, Kyle's desk, somebody's, I mean, like, where the programming used to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, now it's kind of like a mishmash of, uh, there's a four-bay table here where I use to restore the radios and every now and then I'll have people come here and do like, you know, Magic the Gathering and stuff like that in this room. I'll clean it out and set up some tables and chairs and sometimes we have meetings for some of the Airsoft team, sometimes we have meetings for the Ham Club in this room, so. It was yeah. kind of a bigger space. Yeah. And when all the analog folks were there, was it sort of an open environment? Uh, Yeah, right? pretty much. Yep. Yeah, we kind of let get free hands on everybody to do what they wanted to do usually had an idea let him go with it and stuff like that. And I read also you were a, you were an authorized Atari dealer? Did the did like the Atari store start? Yeah, first because before then... Analog magazine there was um we had a video store. We sold um Atari video games, um Atari twenty six hundreds, then we got into four hundreds, uh six hundred and eight hundreds. STs weren't around yet when we had the store. Hmm. Then, um, well, originally how it started was um, probably from sci-fi convention in New York City where I met Lee. Um, oh, yeah. My first real job was I made Star Trek props, like communicators, phases, tricorders, uniforms, all that kind of stuff. For the, the original Star Trek, you know, obviously, because that was way back in oh, there. Oh, yeah. So I advertised on Starlog issue number two. I don't know if you remember the magazine called Starlog. Star sure. Yeah. Um, and I've had people come in here that knew who I was. To see if they have any pieces for tricorders or communicators, because oh, if they uh, have, you know, if, if you have an original communicator that I made, you know, it's worth like eight hundred dollars now, where I was selling it for like thirty nine ninety five back then. So if somebody has one missing piece, you know, like, <laughs> the value will go up on it. So they come here looking for a part. Oh, that's um, funny. Um, yeah, so I went down to New York City with my then girlfriend, who's my wife now. Um, I said, wait in the car, I'm going to run in and see if our room is ready. So when I was ran into the hotel in New York City, I forget what hotel it was, I get the room all set, I come out, and she goes, yeah, there's this guy here that saw that the car was purchased in Worcester, and he said, he's from Worcester, he wants to meet us <laughs> after, during a convent, you know, so that's how I met Lee, because he was big into sci-fi stuff. You know, most, all of us were actually, so. And then um, we both had 2600s, and we used to, you know, just get together and play with the 2600, and then we lease it. Ah, there's the Atari 400 coming out with star raiders. You should get that. We both got that. And, and it's like, hey, let's publish a little newsletter. This is fun, you know? So <laughs> that's kind of how it started. We were actually out so we're at a restaurant trying to think of the name of it, the magazine. We just kind of, it was one of those weird moments where you're writing stuff down on a napkin, you know? Um, <laughs> I thought of analog. I'm just trying to think of you know an acronym, and I said analog. That's a computer word, and because you know Atari newsletter and lots of games. Because we were trying to think of Atari newsletter AN something, and I was trying to think of a computer name. So I mean, doesn't sound as exciting, but 
And I wasn't even <laughs> thinking of analog science fiction, science fact. I already had a magazine then, but oh, right, it didn't yeah. really matter. Yeah. Um, they didn't say anything, so. Oh, yeah. They, I, I was kind of curious about that. Yeah, so you never got any feedback from them about the name at all? Yeah, no, nothing. So it was going to be a newsletter, basically. Um, and I, you know, would get a lot of computer magazines back then. Compute was one that I liked and some other computer magazines. And I said, I'll, I'll cut out the ads out of this, these magazines, uh, make a little form letter, put the ad on it, and say, you know, we can take this ad out of Compute Magazine. You don't have to send us any money or anything right now. Say yes or no. We'll charge you, like, you know, $100 to put this in. And we got pretty much a yes from a lot of companies. Oh, really? So, wow, there's a lot of ads in there. We have to put more articles now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so then the first one was, um, you know, with a magazine, because it's Atari newsletter, a little bit bigger than a newsletter, but it was going to be a, just a newsletter. And, uh, it's like, oh, we could do art for the front cover and legals. It has to be a science fiction spacecraft. So my father was kind of an artist. He did mostly landscapes. And I said, yeah, do a spacecraft flying <laughs> through the air, shooting at something. And he did that first cover. I think he did a couple covers. But. So also that, 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 very, that very first issue was, Going to be the newsletter, and it just got so big, it became analog issue number one. Yeah. Yep. Wow. It was going to be a, just a newsletter, probably like you know, uh, you know, fourteen, sixteen pages, just to send out to people like, you know, using the twenty six hundred or the Atari four hundred. Um, I still have the Atari four hundred with a special, you know, we'll call it chiclet keyboard. You know, instead of those little flat keys, the four hundred had this was like a real keyboard you mount in there. Oh right. I still have, still have that. That was your original machine? Yep. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, and um, actually, when we mailed them, I, I used a, an Atari printer, the little probably like three-inch wide, four-inch wide printer they had. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. They printed all the mailing labels, sat in the floor in the basement, and, you know, glued all the mailing labels on all the magazines to send out. So we you know, brought them to the post office. We did everything like that by hand originally. <laughs> What was your what was your first print run for that first issue? Do you remember? Was it like thousands or? Um, yeah, I think the first issue was like I think it was like three thousand, because if you got a thousand or three thousand, it's probably like ten dollars difference. You know what I mean? When you get something printed, <laughs> and then some subscribers would write in and you know have ideas for things and say, hey, just write it, and we'll, we'll pay you, and that's you know kind of how that took off. Everything just kind of fell into place. I mean, that's the best way for things to go. Not pre-plan it, put things in stone. Just kind of let it happen and see how it works. There certainly wasn't that much information about the Ataris and that, you know, you guys were the first Atari-specific magazine. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, we'd, you know, contact um, Atari. Were they in Sunnyvale then, I think? Yeah. I believe, yeah. Um, we had some contacts there. Um, I mean, Lee was the good contact guy because, you know, he liked, you know, sitting at a desk talking to people on the phone, traveling to California, traveling to, you know, Vegas for the shows, and I just, like, staying here doing the magazine. I was, like, hands-on things, you know, working with it. I don't really like sitting at a desk and, you know, just talking to people. So I enjoyed, you know, designing the ads, designing the magazine, doing the, the layout. I mean, it's crazy now when you think, uh, you know, we printed all that stuff on um, a computer, and I think, uh, yeah, we just printed it on a computer with... Uh, uh, a printer kind of had to come out halfway decent, but then eventually, I think issue um, four or five, we got the uh, CompuGraphic typesetting equipment, which was like, you know, 
uh, $120,000, which back then was like, you know, half wow. a million or yeah. something. Like, oh my gosh, we really buy this stuff? Um, <laughs> Must have been which a now you can do decision. it on a, on a laptop and a, a nice printer and a laser printer <laughs> for like a few hundred dollars. Uh, I'm not sure if you know how the typesetting equipment used to work. It would print it out in strips, like photographic paper, like black and white photographic paper. Oh, really? No. You know, it would actually print the text. You'd have a special keyboard, special computer and screen where you'd type it in. It's almost like it's done photographically. Wow. And it would print out strips. And you'd have to run the strips through a machine and put wax on the back of it. And, it's, and the wax is temporary. You stick it on the, the boards for each page. And you could cut it out, move it, cut it in the middle, open it up, stick an atom between some text. and So it was, everything was like hand laid out. I mean, it took... I mean, we were always late with the thing, you know, because it took so much so long to do it. Well, you're positioning everything by hand and cutting everything and laying it out. Then you have to take, like, a picture of the final page. Is that how it worked? You, you bring all the pages um, that are hand laid out on a... Uh, we had these pre-printed boards that was the size of the page and it had the header already on it and a line where the page number would go. So we'd put them all together. We'd, we'd have, like, two proofreaders look at them. We'd hand them out to everybody else that worked here. So just read all through it, see what you think. <laughs> um, and we'd drive about an hour and a half away to the printers and bring it there. And then they'd take photographs of the page and it would be like a black and white negative, it would look like. Mm. And then they'd print it off of that. Except when it came to color, then it's, you know, there's more than just one negative, there's a few. The first issue was like two colors, blue, things, yeah, blue ink and black ink. We're going to just have a black ink and say, oh, let's be fancy and put two colors on the cover. <laughs> and it looked like by issue, I don't know, six or five or six or so, you went to like full color covers. Yep, yeah. And, then, and you had full color ads starting somewhere yeah. in there too. Yeah, we did. It's funny, some of those companies are kind of still around and some aren't, but anyone who was in the computers back then would kind of remember some of the names. Sure, yeah, like Infocom and Synapse and... Yep. And, and Analog, you, you guys yourselves had a software publishing arm yeah. as well, right? Yep, Analog Software, yep. Yeah, was that um, run out of the same, your, your house as well? And Yep, we did it down here too, uh, right you know, in this building I'm working on right now, somebody sat there one by one, loading it on cassette from another cassette, you know, from a, from a computer onto cassette, <laughs> make it one at a time. <laughs> no high-speed copying machine then. Sort of on demand as the orders came in? Yeah, kind of. Well, we'll make up as many as we can ahead of time and then make up some and stick the labels on, make the labels on sticky back paper. Um, you know, and uh, as far as I know, we were the first magazine to have a, a, the media it bound into the magazine like a floppy disk. And we did have, you know, three and a half inch. Um, yeah, we had regular floppies, and I feel we issued started with floppies. Uh, I think we had five and a quarters in the beginning, and then went to three and a half inch to, you know, floppy but not floppy disks or in those later on. People yeah. would steal them out of the magazines and the, and the uh, and bookstores, so we ended up putting it in a Tyvek bag so it'd be hard for them just to pull out of the magazine. It used to be in a regular paper envelope bound into the magazine. <clears throat> and then eventually we just had the whole thing shrink-wrapped too. So people, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't know if they have any that are shrink-wrapped with cardboard on it. I have a few of those. I, I'm pretty sure I have every copy somewhere here. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm so bummed. I don't know. I had I had a bunch of analogs. I never was a subscriber, but I'd I'd go to and get it at the at the bookshop every month. Yeah, it's always fun having an excuse to go to the bookstore whenever you know. I was always in the magazines. Now I kind of I go look at magazines. Not too many I see now that I want. But yeah, it still would be fun looking through yes. magazines. I used to like uh, computer magazines and car magazines. <laughs> the two that I was like. Um, but yeah, the it's funny how I see them. Like I said, for sale on eBay, people selling oh, selling the old copies. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and there's a couple pages dedicated to some of the old magazines, one or two dedicated to analog. Um, Tom Hudson has a nice webpage devoted to analog. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen, uh, and Lee Poffas has some stuff on his site. Yeah. And, uh, yep. And there's a couple people doing, like, digital versions, I yep. guess. Uh, Kevin Savitz has done some stuff, and there's a, um, another guy who can't, I can't remember yep. off the top of my head, but yeah. The covers, after a while, it was fun just designing covers and no. Tom and John were big into trying to figure out the cover. John was really good with art. Come yeah, I was going to ask you about that because some of the covers were like really detailed, and it's, and you never yeah. seem to have like a one style. You seem to do a lot of different styles. Yeah, yep. And yeah, we had you know some different people do it. I did a few. We had a girl here that was uh, like our head artist. She did a few. John and Tom would like to do computerized fancy ones because they were into like movies and sci-fi movie making so they you know kind of doing a cover on a magazine is you know laying out something designing it was really good um you know we had some interesting simple ones we had some corny ones we had um uh, we had an artist gary lippincott um if you, so if you look him up he's like really kind of a semi-famous artist now um there's a lot of fantasy like hobbit elf dragon kind of things right now but he did when he was starting out he had some of our magazine covers um oh, we had a, a famous space artist don dixon do a cover for us yeah which funny story you know he he keeps his own art he doesn't like sell he just keeps it or puts it on display and a, a couple of years ago i found the art for that cover i was like whoops who didn't send us back i'm keeping this <laughs> <laughs> yeah one of the guys i met through this podcast uh rick keen did a couple covers for st log and he was telling me about yep. some of the processes that, that you guys went through. You know, paid some artists to do it. You know, we had some people send in some ideas. We did most of the covers ourselves, except the few that we had um, um, artists just do. But the ones that were kind of laid out, like an Atari ST that looked like a piece of marble cake or um, a face with a Atari logo projected over it or um, a scene with a rocket ship looked like an Atari logo. That was all a real diorama that you know John and Tom made um, I was kind of on a few covers I was the knight in the armor using a computer it was a dungeon oh, wait, I remember that one <laughs> um, I was where they did a teacher standing up in class and their students sit in chairs I was the teacher and Tom and John and Charlie were some of the people that if you look at the caricatures of us that was us I forget what issue that was well, education issue, obviously, but I don't remember what number that was, but it was like a Gary Lippincott did that one. Uh, that was kind of funny. Um, there's another one where, oh, Santa Claus arms are at a computer with, you know, the, the white fur and red sleeves. It was just two sleeves that we made, and I was sitting at a keyboard, and they took a picture. Um, I remember that one, too. Kind of thing, but, yeah, that was always fun to do. If we had enough time to do a fancy cover, if we were in a hurry, we would you know, kind of do it quick and simple. But. I remember one cover in particular. Uh, the I think it was issue number thirty, where they had the you had the ST on the cover for like the first image of the ST. 
Oh yeah, yep. And I guess that was like a, a mock-up that. Yep. That, that was made from from pictures. Yep. That was amazing because it looked just like. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read on Tom Hudson's website that uh, later the Trammels contacted you and said that they would have given you an ST if if. Uh, yeah. <laughs> magazine had it on the cover so yeah because you guys were the first right and he's yep. scooped scooped antic and uh yep yeah what was your what was your relationship with the other computer industries i mean was there a big rivalry between like you and antic and uh, i don't know i didn't feel when i just did what i had to do and we had subscribers and it was you know going really good and um i didn't you know i just thought it was another magazine you know i would buy a car and driver road and track a motor trend and they were yeah. all rivals but you know if it's a good issue people buy it so i just wanted to make sure that the issue was good so people would buy it. Um, the more magazines for, you know, the, the Atari people, the better, I thought, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think from, and your first, your, the first analog, you had an ad for Compute. And uh, I think, I think yep. I remember seeing an ad for analog in the in one of the other Computes as well, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Compute was a good magazine, I and then there was a, like, I forget what year it was, but there was like a big shakeup in computer magazines. There were so many of them out there, you know. The advertisers couldn't advertise in every one. And, oh, yeah. You know, a lot of them were generic computer magazines. Luckily, that you know, we were specialized in a certain computer, so, um, but, I don't know. And we went over really well in Germany. Um, a lot of magazines went to Germany. You know, the Germans are kind of like engineers, so they like the ST log a lot, and... Um, oh right, yeah. The ST was big in Germany for sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, it was going pretty good, and I don't know. Then uh, I think it was probably me that was kind of getting a little bit tired of it. If I like into something, I can't really get into it. So that's when I contacted a few companies that publish magazines. Um, that's when. Um, Larry Film Publishing said, yeah, come on, you coming over. I'll get you a flight next Tuesday, and we can talk about it. It's like, okay. Um, this is like that 87 was, or so? Yeah, yep, 87. I think Lee was at a convention or something. Um, he wasn't around, and it's like, okay, I'll I'll be there. So I um, talked to them, and, you know, there's like two choices. You could move out here, sign a contract, you work for us at least four years, and probably after that, and you move out here and live out here, or we can give you some, just write you a check, and you know we own your part of the thing. And um, I had three kids at that time, so it's like, nah, I don't know if I want to live in in that area. I remember driving by. I mean, my daughter lives in L.A. now, and she likes it, but you know, I, I just thought bringing up some little kids, um, if I was better around here in New England and stuff. I don't know. We used to hear from the East Coast, right? Uh, I I lived in Boston for a while, yeah. Yeah, Boston's a awesome city. My son loves Boston. He actually lives in Beacon Hill. Oh, really? He spends a penny to live on Beacon Hill because he likes it so much. <laughs> you know, it's like that's too expensive. So I love Boston. Yeah, it I isn't, to... you know. He likes history, so it's a nice historical city. Um, yeah, it is for sure. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time just exploring stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, he'll go out by himself a lot too. He sent me pictures the other day when it's nice in Boston. He was on a, he he rents some one of those kayaks and just you know scoots along there, like the Charles or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, 
nice. But um, so I just, you know, took the money and it's like, okay, now what do I do? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember standing at my house. I just brought my house like about a year before. It was pretty expensive. Oh, now what? <laughs> uh, and I was just kind of thinking, and it's, you know, I just sold that house last, you know, well, two years ago. So, you know, it was not really that big of a problem, but, uh, and I was always in the hobbies, uh, modeling, you know, making plastic model kits, military aircraft, cars, uh, radio control, helicopter planes, boats, um, uh, trains a little bit, but I was in the, everything the old school hobby stores were into, you know. So I said, I know all about this stuff. I'll, you know, open a store. So that's what I did. You know, pretty much it was a computer store here before that, so yeah. it was a storefront. Um, but um, yeah, the computer as a you know a good, a good part of my life that I liked. All employees are always easy to work for. Um, I don't know. Some people tell me I'm intimidating to work for because they don't know what I'm thinking or if I like them or not. But I never thought I was intimidating or, or anything. Um, you know, they're just a, a good group of guys that did their jobs. Um, one thing I kind of regret, I remember Tom, he was working on the software that made him kind of pretty wealthy, something 3D, whatever that, what is that software yes. that he wrote? Uh, I can't think of it, but uh, he was working on it here and he asked me if I'd be interested in it when he's gone to go, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, stupid BRs make their wrong choices, but whatever. Yeah, hindsight's uh, easy, I guess. But... Yeah, yep. But yeah, I remember um, he was working on some three D stuff for uh analog. Had some Yeah. Yeah, he was I don't know if you remember, he made wrote the software had this bouncing chrome ball that was spinning. And Atari mm -hmm. logo was reflecting in the ball. Yeah. I remember saying, How can a computer do that? <laughs> <laughs> he wrote it. It's like awesome. Yeah, you had you had quite a, a talented staff there. Oh how'd yeah. You, how'd you find all those guys? Um, some of them we just knew through, you know, liking sci-fi and going to conventions, and uh, some were readers who sent in an article or, um, or two and didn't mind moving out here or up here. Or, um, yeah, um, Tom and John and uh, Clayton Wallum, um, yeah. Kyle, um, um. Moriarty. Brian Moriarty, who I think he might Brian, still yep. be in Worcester, isn't he? Is, he? is he teaching up there? Uh, yep, yep. He teaches up. So, I mean, they're all, you know, kind of came together, and you know, even now they're they're really doing well on their jobs. And I think Brian worked for a software company like um, Lucas Arch or something like that. For some reason, I thought it was. Yeah, I think he did. Uh, he worked on. Was it Loom? Yeah. Yeah, those are good old days. Occasionally, um, you know, Lee stopped in. I see him every now and then stop in. Yeah. Um, Tom, when he comes this way to pick up a new electric car, he'll <laughs> give me a call and, you know, wonder if I want to go out and eat. Charlie's still around. Um, I'm not sure what Charlie's doing at the moment. He was working for me for a while here at the store doing computer stuff. Um, but yeah, then, he was kind of your hard, one of your hardware guys, wasn't he? Yep, yeah. I mean, it's funny, Charlie worked for me at Analog and worked for me here. So he's worked for me for probably 32, 33 years. I don't know. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. But a few winters ago, I think 2009 or 10, he fell and broke his hip. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So I'm not sure what he's doing. He stopped in a few times. Um, but 
But I don't know if anything else you, you know, usually can think of when you're looking at the magazines, anything that I just kind of rambled on and on, didn't pick anything in particular. Oh, that's great. And, you know, one of the things I, I always loved about the magazine was all the, the type-in games. And you guys seem to have more, like, assembly language, like, really kind of hardcore gaming stuff than, than anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because of, you know, uh, the programmers here were more into that and hardcore and, you know, just wanted to come up with something better than any other type-in uh, programming. Oh, I can't believe him. You probably remember spending hours typing something in and having, yeah. having it not work. All those dumb like, hex digits. Oh, like but I put a comma instead of a period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then yeah. had the checksums at least so that would help catch some yeah. errors. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I definitely, I remember sitting typing in Livewire, just sitting there for hours and hours and hours. And of course, it didn't work the first time and you had to check it to find yeah. out which line statement was wrong. But it was a great game. That game, game. was I worth it though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I remember I did a little uh, thing for the magazine, like a, a music thing for that music cartridge. There was a little section I had in there. That I forget what it was called. Yeah, uh, I looked it up too. Yeah, it was in the first couple issues. Yeah, the music cartridges are pretty cool. Um, That's one I never experimented with. Yeah, how about MIDI? If they flew on with the MIDI stuff, because that was kind of cool when they finally had. I MIDI didn't actually know when you know, when yeah. the SD came out. No, I never did anything with the MIDI. I was yeah, because I know some popular musicians back in the day were using Atari's for some music stuff or you know electronic music and yeah, they were. And I I kept my SD for a long time. When I finally sold it in like the '90s, late '90s, there was a music musician just like yep. oh, this is great. You know, he just took all my stuff and he just thought you know just SDs were were where it yeah. was at for the music stuff. Oh yeah. I still have the ST, I, and I was looking at it like last year, and I don't know if it was in the sun or something, but you know, I remember it being kind of a grayish tan color, but the plastic on it all kind of yellowed. It kind of looks like an ivory yellow color now. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Maybe <laughs> yeah, the outgassing of the plastic or something kind of. Yeah. I don't know what happened, but yeah, it's like wow, I don't remember it this color. So <laughs> that's just for being old. Yep. Yeah, same thing kind of happened. My old 800s kind of got all yellowed. Uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I sort of learned, learned a lot of programming from all the, and I, I sort of, I appreciated all the, the space you guys devoted to the assembly language listings too, because you know those, those aren't very dense, so it takes yeah. up a lot of, a lot of space. Yep. I think sometimes you said, oh, we're gonna fill some more pages, write a bigger program, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we could take it up. It'd be too obvious we blow up the, the, you know, the letters, the numbers, so it'd make it longer. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we found some other you know, errors and some issues, but I think overall most of them came out pretty good without any major problems. Or you know, we had a corrections page sometimes at the back of our issue for the previous issue, but everything uh, was pretty good. They really did a good job. Um, you know, we had Diane God doing a lot of the typesetting. Edith started um, doing a lot of the typesetting. You know, two women that worked here full time uh, for a couple of years. We had Connie Moore. She's like the art director. Uh, did really good work on that. Um, you know, the one it cover I can remember that she did it was like this. Uh, it kind of was like the Superman when uh, he was flat out in the space, like a flat. Um, we had this guy, an older guy with a beard, put nerd glasses on him, had him like stick his face against a piece of glass, and kind of <laughs> used that as like. Um, kind of like it was from a Superman when we they locked the guy in a in a, a flat piece of like tile and it was spinning off into space and you could see oh, it like right, yeah. 
the, we did a cover kind of like that. Phantom Zone. Yeah. Like Superman. Yeah. Yeah. So we did a cover kind of like that. Um, I remember she did that one. That one came out pretty nice. And some Christmas covers we had, um, Christmassy ones. But yeah, it's it's pretty fun. I was almost thinking of continuing doing magazines. But it would have to be something I like. I'm I'm kind of spoiled. Like even at my hobby store, if I'm not into like dollhouse stuff, I have no dollhouse stuff. If I'm not into trains, <laughs> don't have any train. I only like to sell stuff that I like. Yeah. Um, um. So I couldn't really think of a magazine to do. I thought of a few over the years, but it's like, nah, it'd be so much easier now. But I don't know. Um, you know, most of the things are like published online. I could maybe do that. I know Lee kept with all the magazines and some photography and electronic magazines. Yeah, so um, he done he done a lot of it, like video games and computer entertainment. I think was one of his. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like I thought, you know, the, the contract for Larry Phil was four years, and after four years, he was gone. You know, I mean, I knew they probably wouldn't keep either of us after the uh, four year contract. So that was another reason why I didn't want to move out there for four years and. Then have to move back, move somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was interesting, you know, going there and and meeting the people. That, you know, I'll, I'll tell people uh, Larry Flint bought the magazine, and some people will know who he is, and some people won't. But <laughs> and I was like, wow, how come? Because he did yeah. all kinds of magazines, not yeah. just like one that most people know. Yeah, all yeah. sorts. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and uh, SD Log, I guess, was that was split off. From analog yep. before the sale, right? Yeah, yeah, split it off before the sale, yeah. But you can tell a difference, you know, take the last five issues of you know, the analog when we had it here and the first five issues when they had it. It, it was a little bit more West Coast looking <laughs> when they did the covers, you know. Um, but, you know, they weren't bad, but uh, I know Clayton... They def def definitely changed their style for sure. Yeah, yep. Yeah, there were some... I saw some staff was the same, but then some, of course, didn't didn't go out there. Yeah. Um, oh, about uh, back to the eight bit stuff. I was the uh, analog compendium the only sort of book that you guys had sold? Because I remember that was kind of a bundling, or the the book sort of the best of the first ten or eleven issues, if I remember right. Yeah. Well, I remember we had a perfect bound book. I feel. Well, we had the analog compendium. We had two, but what was the other one called? We had one that was perfect bound. We had one that was like. Kind of spiral bound with a plastic yeah, spiral. Compendium, I think, was spiral, spiral bound, as I remember. Okay. I mean, was book publishing a lot different than magazine publishing? I mean, I know nothing about the publishing um, industry. But... Not really. I mean, the compendium and was just basically, you know, things from other issues. We just kind of compile, and that was easy to do. Yeah. Perfect binding. We had some perfect bound magazines the uh, the last year, who originally were like uh, stapled. Oh, were were some of the last ones perfect bound? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And we had, um, uh, you know, finally got a distributor, and you know, in the East Coast, West Coast, and Midwest, that distribute the magazine, so that made circulation bigger. Yeah, uh, how did you how did you increase the circulation? Did you was there just a lot? Was it more based on subscriptions that came in, or were more people buying the magazine to stock it in? I think there was mostly subscriptions, um, but then we did get into a lot of the bigger bookstores near the end there too. Um, mm -hmm. They were picking it up. Um, you know, we have to hire someone to put us in the bookstores, so, you know, it cost us. And if you want to be put in that special rack where customers can see the magazine out front, you've got to cost a little extra. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. like a literary agent or something? 
Yeah, pretty much he would talk to people. I only went to one, um, like I said, Lee went to most of the the shows and talked to most of the distributors. And But um, the year before we sold, uh, you know, or when we were in the process of selling, we had one big computer show to do in London. So I said, you know, I'm going to go to this one. You can stay here. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the one in London, um, talked to a bunch of different magazine distributors there that were that were picking up the magazine, and that was, you know, kind of interesting to go to a, a British um, computer show. Um, yeah, I don't think they didn't have any Atari magazines until you know later on. I don't. I forget yeah. when Page Six or Atari User came out over there, but it was I think it was yep. eighty four, eighty five, something. But so do you know when they then when you started uh, shipping analog over there? Um, was it pretty early I, on? A, yeah, probably about eighty six. And I think the show I went to was probably in '86 or '87. Talked to some of the, uh, you know, importers, magazines, U.S. magazines that sell over there. Um, was that for uh, probably more for SD log, I suppose, than than analog? No, it was pretty much both. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. I mean, you you did a lot of jobs in on the magazine. I mean, you know, publisher, sorry, advertising manager as well. Uh, yep. Yeah. Um, Seems like you reviewed a lot of stuff early on, and then uh, did you just get too busy to keep reviewing things? And yeah, but uh, yeah, the part I liked the best was laying out the magazine, seeing how it looked, the finished product looked. That was the fun part, I thought. Um, oh, you know, most of the programmers would, you know, I'd go home at seven o'clock sometimes, and they would say, "Okay, see you later," because they, they would just like staying here working on this stuff. You know, <laughs> they you know, weren't getting overtime for it back then, but. It was like their passion. Yeah, you know, game design and, and stuff back then is a lot different than it is nowadays. You know, it's, yeah, it's more a lot more self-contained. You know, I uh, well back then on. when you wrote any kind of game, it had to fit in a certain amount of <laughs> that's true yeah. memory. Now they don't care. It's like go buy some more memory to run our game. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you know, even even choosing to write a game in forty-eight K back then was a a big decision because yeah. not ev- not everybody had that much. Yep. True. What was the relationship with Atari back then? Were they supportive, or uh, did yeah, you talk they, to the owners? Yeah, they would send new product when it would come out. Um, you know, that was one little bonus you get, something like that. Some companies coming out with a little home robot. It's like, yeah, we're going to review it for the magazine. Can you send us one? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, most of the time they'd send it, we can keep it, or say, you know, send it back when you're done. But, you know, software and hardware, they would send here for reviews, and, you know, that was pretty cool. I mean... I wasn't as big into, you know, getting it and keeping it, but it was cool to see it when it first came out. And then, you know, one of the programmers or Lee or somebody else would, could have it. I didn't really, I wasn't really collecting stuff back then, but it was kind of good to see it right away when it first came out or before it came out, some prototype stuff. And software as well, would you get pre-releases of, you know, games yeah. or whatever to review? Because yeah, what's what was the lead time for the magazine? I mean, it's, it's is it months or how long is um, it? Yeah, we're about two months. If you see a magazine at the stand, it was, you know, planned and almost ready to know what was going in about two months before that. Wow. Yeah. So to be current, you kind of had to predict what was going to be available? Yeah, yeah. Try to. Because, you know, some people will, um, I sell models here, and some people will come in and say, I just picked up a model magazine that said this will be out this month. I said, I doubt it. I mean, two months ago when they wrote that, they were probably guessing. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll see. Yeah, and in terms of the store today, you, uh, I saw a lot of uh, radio-controlled stuff and uh, yep. paintball. and uh, well, Paintball was really big. Now it's Airsoft because Airsoft is cheaper, looks more realistic. Um, 
Oh, um, nowadays, what is... who doesn't play like Call of Duty or Battlefield? So it's like um, those people want to get something a little more <laughs> realistic than sitting at a computer. Airsoft shoots um, six millimeter plastic BBs. They don't hurt as bad as paintball, but they don't leave a mark like a paintball. It's on the honor system, which seems to work pretty good most of the time. But whatever gun you get for airsoft, it usually looks exactly like the real weapon. It feels like it if you get a good quality one. And everything is self-contained. The BBs go in the mag. Uh, Batteries, battery power will go in the stock or the front handguard. So you don't have a hopper or a tank hanging off of it. It's more realistic looking. And it's a lot cheaper. You can get a really high-end airsoft gun for between two and three hundred. I mean, you can get some decent ones for a hundred, but yeah, 150. I would start at for something decent, but um, between two and 300, a real high-end airsoft gun, and that's like a mediocre paintball gun. Um, yeah, it's been a long time. Usually, a real good paintball gun is like 800, 1200 dollars. Is it really well? Paintballs are like a nickel a piece when you shoot them. <laughs> you can get like an you know, expensive hobby. Yeah. Yeah, five thousand airsoft BBs for ten dollars. In movies now, you use airsoft guns because they look so real. Oh, wow. They just add in, like, you know, the flame coming out of the front of it later. And so that's, that's got your best-selling stuff today. Do you do, you do um, like, plastic models or model rocketry or any of that stuff? Yeah, we do that also. All kinds of plastic models. Probably, you know, where we are here, as far as airsoft goes, probably the biggest, you know, inventory of airsoft within maybe 100 miles. So we get a lot of people come here for airsoft. So yeah, and I I love the tagline of your uh, your store. It's like we have everything you want, but nothing you need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I you know I said that years ago to customers. Wow, you get awesome stuff. And then I said that. I said, you should have used that on your sign or something. Said, yeah, because well, it's true. Everything you sell, no one really needs. That's why when you know the the economy goes bad, as a little recession, you know, hobby and really will die and it'll be slow. Yeah, it probably hits you. Pretty hard. I mean, yeah, but I'm lucky because I own the building. Four years ago, I actually uh, refinished the upstairs here. I had like a five bedroom house upstairs here because it's like 2,000 square feet. Um, oh. And basically, because my wife is handicapped and they wanted to put her in a uh, like a nursing home and stuff like that. I said, no. I said, I keep an eye on her. They go, how can you do that? You work. They go, I'll tell you what, I work in this where, where I live. I said, well, okay, <laughs> you can do that. So I redid the. The upstairs here it was um actually it was an art gallery and picture framing my my father I let him use that upstairs so that when he was into that um and I got into the whole place and did it all over like everything I might as well have tore it down and sat over I just kind of gutted it and put everything up so you know I walked to work every day <laughs> <laughs> good exercise that's a yeah, good commute <laughs> yep yep yeah and it's funny too I met her. Uh, I, I met her on a CB radio. It's funny how I, you know, do ham radios and show radios still. I met her on a CB radio 36 years ago. Um, and we were dating. She bought me the Atari 2600 as a present for Christmas, which got me into the Ataris. <laughs> it's funny how little things will change your whole life. Yeah, that's right. Oh, wow. Got Enough of your time. Thanks. Thanks a lot for talking. Glad well, I could help talk about it. It was a good old days. So I don't mind talking about it. But yeah, it's nice talking to you. Nice talking with you too. Yeah, appreciate your time. Okay, you're welcome. So again, I want to thank Mike Deshane for sitting down with me and recording this interview. Analog was a big part of my life growing up on the, with the Atari computers. 
especially the machine language games, I would just pour over those and try to understand how you know, to squeeze all the processor cycles out and, and do all the just amazing graphics things that they did. You know, Bacterion by Kyle Peacock, Livewire by Tom Hudson, Crash Dive by Brian Moriarty. It was a lot of fun, I'm, and I'm really glad that they were able to print all those machine languages. Because, you know, it's, it's machine language is not very dense, so it takes a lot of space to print a machine language program. Although it's funny, as Mike mentioned in the interview, they were really looking to fill pages. I thought they'd try to like condense stuff. No, they were looking to fill more pages, which sort of never really occurred to me that they'd want longer program listings. But I'm glad they included all the comments that, that they did, because it is a challenge to try to figure out assembly language. So let's talk about issue number one. I never read this issue. I didn't really start until 1983 sometime. I'm thinking maybe issue 11 or 12. So this is all new to me. The cover price is 2 bucks or $5.04 in uh, 2014 dollars. As Mike mentioned in the interview, the cover was drawn by his father. And it's stylized like Star Raider, so it shows the your ship and then the Xylon fighters and you firing photons at one of them. The inside cover is an ad for Compute Magazine. And reciprocally, we'll see an ad for Analog in the January 81 issue of Compute as well. So I thought this was interesting that the competitors would have ads for each other's magazines in their magazines. As a teenager, I had limited funds. I'd have to choose which magazine to get. So in the interview with Mike, he said they really didn't see it as, you know, one-upsmanship or or being competitors. They just tried to do the best magazine they could. But for me, I thought it was kind of odd that I'd see an advertisement for another magazine when I only had money to save for one of the magazines. So for this first issue of Analog, I'm going to kind of go into much more detail in this in the magazine that I might in future issues. Uh, the table of contents at Masthead includes some names I recognize, like, of course, Mike DeShane, Lee Pappas. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. Charles Bachand? He was with the magazine, I think, for the whole run, actually. Some other names I didn't recognize from my readings later on. I recognize Charles Bachand from Planetary Defense, which was a game that he and Tom Hudson wrote and... Recently, the uh, Android emulator, uh, Colleen, included a touchscreen version of Planetary Defense, which is great, and so I'll include a link to that in the show notes. As an aside, that's why I won't go back to an iPhone, just because you can't legally run emulators on the iPhone. The, the App Store restrictions, for whatever reason, which I don't agree with. So the Atari 800 emulation aspect keeps me on Android phones. So the editorial for this first issue speaks to use the magazine to try to dispel the myth that Ataris are just games machines. And, you know, we see this over and over, just the name Atari and the association with games really limited the appeal of the Ataris to games players and sort of reduced the chances that it would be taken seriously in the business world. In the editorial, is written by Lee Pappas, said the question right now is, how technical should the magazine be? So they included a questionnaire that they said is vital for the users to answer, so please fill it out and send it to us. Talking about the technical superiority of the Atari, said the color TRS-80 is a joke in comparison to even the 400. The Apple II is archaic in technology next to the 800, and any other micro on the market just can't match Atari's built-in computing power. Many computer stores won't carry the 400 or 800. There just isn't any software available. Well, we receive software and new products at almost daily basis here at the analog office, so much that we have a difficult time reviewing it all. I'm very impressed with the amount of really good software available in just a year's time. Yeah, and so this is 1981, so we really are starting to see more software. It's really not to 1982 where we see the 
a big influx of software. But at least we have enough to start going month by month here at the podcast. Some of the new software they list coming out are the, the Asteroids port, the Missile Command port, SCRAM, the Nuclear Power Reactor Simulator, the Pilot Language, which is sort of a kid's learning language, and then they have a review of Space Invaders. Their review makes the point that the Atari version only takes 8K, while the Apple II version takes 20K. It's even better than that. As I noted in the last episode, it's really an 8K cartridge, but the code itself fit in much less than that. There's an article called, called Parlez-vous Pascal, which is an introduction to Pascal, and it talks of various other languages. So Pascal was never officially released by Atari. They did code it up, and they released it through APX in 1982, but it was unsupported and of very limited utility because it required two disk drives. Compilers and debuggers were pretty limited. Uh, and there's a review in issue 11 of Analog, which we'll get to eventually. Here's a game review of a game called Tank Trap, which is written in Atari Basic with machine language subroutines. So it's looks like it's you're trying to surround this rampaging tank. It kind of looked like maybe a cross between Kix and Robotron, but I didn't play this one. Mike Duchesne had a column called Listen, the music composer column. So it's the beginning of a monthly column using the Atari Music Composer cartridge. So it's a basic intro to music reading. And me not being a musician, I'm just sort of, you know, there's clefs, notes, octaves, duration, rest, sharp, and flat. Some of the terms. And yeah, clearly I'm the wrong guy to talk about music theory. But you, uh, it was a way to enter music using um, sort of symbols where you'd enter uh, notes with the letter for the note, a number indicating the octave, and the duration which is either a whole, half, quarter, eighth, sixteenth, or thirty-second note. And there's a, some way to enter a sharp, flat, or natural value. And doing some more reading on sounds, the Atari could only generate square waves, and so if you wanted to generate, like, if you wanted to simulate a piano, you had to do some serious wave modification uh, at every sixtieth of a second. I guess brass instruments are sort of triangularly wave-shaped, I don't know. Again, I'm the wrong guy to talk about music. Although the next article in the magazine is called Basic Sounds. It includes some source code by Russ Walter. And one of the sounds I'll include here. So I typed in this basic program. Look at me typing in basic for the first time in almost 30 years. So I love the full-screen editor. I just use the arrow keys, move around, change stuff, hit return, and it changes the line. But funnily enough, I couldn't remember how to clear out a program in memory, so I had to look up an Atari basic reference. Yeah, so it's the command new clears out a program. So there's a type-in game in this, this issue. It's uh, called Blocked by David Bulky. I'm probably pronouncing that totally incorrectly, but it's a basic game, and it kind of looks like Light Cycles-ish. There's a hardware review of something called the Curta Graphics Tablet, which is a $600 digitizer for Graphics 8, or resolutions up to Graphics 8. It uses three joystick ports, so clearly it couldn't be used on an XL machine. So their bottom line review was that it was expensive for what it did, and facing that page is an ad for the very same tablet. 
there's another game review of a game called Mountain Shoot, which is a game I first saw on an Apple II, where you've got a there's two cannons, each player controls a cannon. There's a hill in the middle, and you take turns setting the angle of the cannon and the number of bags of powder, trying to blow up the other cannon. And I don't remember what it was called on the Apple II, but I don't think it was called Mountain Shoot. There's a software review of a program called Font Edit, which is part of the Eridus Number Two. We talked about Eridus before, is that cassette-based magazine. And I think this is the last issue. There's talk of the new release of DOS 2.0S being imminent, where I guess previously in DOS 1, like, apart from it being buggy, it was all resident in memory, whereas DOS 2.0 split DOS and dupe. So you didn't have to load up the menu, or the, uh, menu for DOS unless you needed it. So basically when you type the command DOS, it would load dupe.sys, and then you get your command where you'd be able to list disk drives and run programs and stuff. There's an article called How to Almost Become a Star Commander, which is tips on playing Star Raiders. So apparently Mike and Lee both played a lot of Star Raiders and games and stuff before they started the magazine. So they're both gaming guys. I guess the whole staff of Analog was a bunch of gaming gamer people. There's a, a link in Tom Hudson's website about how he had a Tempest machine that he kept at the, uh, at the office. There's a VCS update where it says where it shows the new releases for the 2600, including Asteroids, Warlords, Video Pinball, and Othello. But I don't think they cover the 2600 very much more, but we'll, I guess we'll see. We'll find out. There's another type-in game called Maze Rider by Charles Bachand. It's written in BASIC and without comments, <laughs> but BASIC is easier to figure out than machine language. It's sort of a maze escape program where you can only see the maze three times, and it doesn't show the maze until you press the button. The next article is Graphically Speaking, which is an intro to graphics from the basic pixel level to colors and screen modes, and it includes two pages of graph paper at mode 0 resolution, which is 40 by 24, and mode 6 or 7 resolution, which is 160 by 96. As an aside, I think that's the resolution of the Intellivision as well, 160 by 96. Next is a Bug and Bites column. Bugs and Bites. It is... This one lists uh, a few things, and there's one of them, there's a problems with the 400 and 800 RAM connectors We're using tin or something other than gold, and so I guess those are being replaced by Atari. And there's a list of user groups. And so I remember going to users groups, and obviously pre-internet, this was a big part of the Atari experience. I didn't get I didn't get into BBSs until a little bit later, so this is where I got a lot of my <laughs> pirated uh, software. But it was fun to talk to people and see what they were doing and show the, show demos and kind of trade stories, get inspired... There's a review of VisiCalc, and they said it was used at Analog to estimate the number of issues to print. There's a couple more demos. There's an Atari Color Rainbow demo, where it displays all 128 colors, with a little machine language subroutine that's called from BASIC. There's a type-in game called Sub by Lee Pappas. It's another BASIC game, but it still doesn't have a lot of po- a lot of comments, but that's something that would change as the magazine evolved. There's a game review of the game Lunar Lander by the ProData Group which is a simple Lunar Lander game. I don't think it, I don't think this one rotates. I think it just goes left and right. Um, but it's in basic because the reviewer uh, changed the amount of fuel in the program code so they could make it a little bit easier. And there's a couple more details, or a couple more demos, and then there's an ad by Atari touting VisiCalc. But, yeah, as we're sort of becoming aware, it's just futile of, of Atari to advertise in a business magazine or business software for the Atari. And finally, there's an ad for Analog selling uh, VCS cartridges. So Analog was a licensed retailer of Atari stuff. 
and they kept the computer store open. And they did computer repair, I guess. Uh, Mike did computer repair for a while after uh, selling analog. And he still even does that today. He still does some repair. When I called him to interview him, he was fixing a ham radio. So yeah, if I still lived in Boston, I would have gone to visit the store. So if you're in the area of Worcester, go check out Master Hobbies. But yeah, they have airsoft stuff. They have plastic models, model rockets, all sorts of hobby stuff. So I'll include a link to his store in the show notes. So we'll move on to Compute Number 8, January 1981. So the cover is a... I noticed a new tagline, or actually I guess it started in the November 80 issue, which says, The 6502 Resource Magazine, Pet, Apple, Atari, OSI, KIM, SYM, and AIM. We know what OSI is. So the title, there on the cover there's a, a reference to player missile graphics on the Atari. Inside the Atari-related stuff, well, there's one that's not totally Atari-related, but I think it's interesting. It's the uh, Mysterious and Unpredictable R&D. So it's about random number generation. So how do you get random numbers on a computer? A computer is deterministic. And how do you get truly random numbers on? Well, the answer is, is you don't, at least at this early stage. John von Neumann, famous mathematician and pioneer in computing, said... Anyone who considers arithmetical methods of producing random numbers is, of course, in a state of sin. So how do you simulate those? We well, use pseudo-random numbers or long-period functions that appear to be random if you don't look over too long of a range. So modern methods use entropy, which is any sort of data that they can glean from processing various user input methods like mouse movements or time between keystrokes, that sort of thing. But pseudo-random use long-period functions that start with some seed. So the seed value is used to start the sequence, and then as you pull bits off the sequence, the next time the random number generator is called, you get a new number, and it goes on and on and on, and eventually it will repeat. So that also implies that if you use the same seed, you will get the same sequence of numbers out. Or sort of a simple way to see a periodic function is the, is the modulo function. I don't know if you remember that from mathematics, but it's like clock arithmetic. So especially if you use a modulo of a prime number, say modulo 7 would include the numbers 0 through 6, and then 7 would map back to 0, and then 8 would map to 1. And even if the function is plus 4, and then feed that back as the next um, entry to the random number generator, you get a, a periodic function that appears to be random. The first number you get out of that would be 4, then the next would be 8, but 8 modulo 7 is 1, and then 5, and then 5 plus 4 is 9, but 9 modulo 7 is, what, 2? But at any rate, there's, there's ways to generate pseudo-random numbers using deterministic functions. The Atari Gazette has an article about player missile graphics by Chris Crawford. So this is, uh, what, January 1981, so this is before Dayray Atari was released, and already Chris Crawford's trying to bang the drum to get more people familiar with the Atari programming. I think at this point he's still trying to convince Atari management to publish Dairy Atari. I don't think it comes out till the end of the year. So in this article he summarizes that there are no direct commands in BASIC, so you have to use peaks and pokes. And he gives a little 15-line BASIC program that has some uh, that controls up and down, left and right, of this little graphic. There is an article called The Fluid Brush, which is a simple drawing program using the joystick. And then a uh, Atari tutorial on the Atari disk menu, showing the as a basic program to list programs on the disk and then run them. Sort of different than a, a boot sector list program that became common 
and that I remember spending a lot of time trying to optimize back then. The the boot sector list program would be like a three-sector assembly language program that would sit on sectors one to three of the floppy disk, and that would go out, and it wouldn't load DOS or anything, just load those first three boot sectors, and then print up a menu that would go scan the directory sectors of the disk, and then print up a list of all the programs to run. So this was common using, again, <coughs> pirated uh, games. And I remember spending a lot, a lot of time trying to develop different programs to see what kind of features I could fit in three sectors, or, uh, what is that, 384 bytes? Is that right? And next we find an ad for Analog 400-800 magazine. So, yep, cross-pollination of magazines. It says there's a $10 yearly subscription, which is interesting because it had a $2 cover price. I just thought of that. Hmm. There's another little section on using the console switches, which is select, option, and uh, start from basic. And these don't register as regular key presses. You've got to actually read. You peek a memory location, and it'll check in the bits. It'll tell you which of the switches is pressed. There's an article on the Atari Disk Operating System, which is an overview of DOS, and I assume it's 1.0, because uh, I don't think, as we saw in the analog issue number one, it said DOS 2.0s hadn't been released yet, so they must be talking about DOS 1.0. And there's an Atari Sounds tutorial, which is a simple basic program to experiment with pitch and distortion values. Sound is a common theme. I guess all three of the magazines, as we'll see, the Creative Computing also has an article about sound. And we might as well use that as a lead-in to Creative Computing. This is Creative Computing Volume 7, Number 1, also January 1981. The cover has a... the title is Graphics and Animation, and there's a picture of a grand piano for some reason. It looked like there might have been some reflections and stuff on the piano, but the the copy on archive.org, the cover wasn't... I couldn't make out what the reflection was supposed to be. There's an article called Soft Centered, which mentions that it uh, seems that the shortage of Atari software is coming to an end, Many companies are moving into the area, both with conversions of existing programs and with original material. Not Atari-related, but interesting in the history of Commodore is the it has an article on the first look at the VIC-20. And the VIC-20 won't be the one that takes out Atari, but the Commodore 64 will be, and the VIC-20 is the precursor to the Commodore 64. The article says, uh, after reviewing the hardware, the question remains, can this new equipment reestablish Commodore in America? From the standpoint of point of price, the answer is most definitely yes. Commodore has shown great interest in making the home computer affordable to the middle class, as opposed to the let-them-eat-cake attitude of some companies. So again, yeah, this this won't be the one. They will sell a million or so VIC-20s. I'm not sure the exact number. But the real 8-bit monster waiting in the wings is the Commodore 64, and that will pretty much destroy everything else in the 8-bit arena. There's a big article about the Atari Music Composer cartridge, and as we saw in the analog, they, uh, Mike Duchesne also had an, an article about this. So it's interesting the sort of the synergies that are developing here among the magazines. All three of them talk about sound, and analog and creative computing talk about the music composer cartridge. It's interesting that stuff happened at the same time, although I guess at this point the software is still so limited that I, they can't talk about much else. So it would only be natural that they would overlap some topics. There's an article called An Atari Library of Sound which has a pretty good description of how the sound works, you know, with four independent voices. And in basic, there's a sound command that it takes four parameters. So the first specifies which channel to be activated, and there's 0 through 3. The second parameter is any value from 0 to 255, which sets the relative pitch or the frequency of the sound. And it says in pure tone mode, the pitch range is about 2.5 octaves. They go out of order, and they, so they describe the fourth parameter, which is just the volume level, and there's 16 volume levels. And then they spend a lot of time talking about the third parameter, which is the tone. 
says there's eight possible values, two of which produce pure tones, and then the rest use different polynomial counters as distortion parameters, and they produce different effects at different frequencies. And there's a, a reference in De Re Atari, which I will include a link to the show notes, that sort of describes how the different distortion values work. One of the examples that they include in the magazine is a little basic program that I typed in, and it sounds like this. The output Atari for this month has a few announcements. They uh, say they announced Space Invaders for the 400-800 as their first machine language cassette. This game has become one of the most popular arcade and computer games, and I look forward to getting a chance to play it. Which is interesting, because the analog had reviewed it at this point. So I get the lead times of the magazines must be a little different. Additionally, here in this Outpost Atari, there's an intro to binary numbers. There's a summary of player missile graphics, and using the syntax of basic. And because it's basically used decimal numbers for the registers and the peaks and pokes and stuff. Rather, if it was a machine language, they'd be using hex numbers. And then at the end of the magazine, the back, back cover, hey, it's the Ohio Scientific Computer. I think we've seen this somewhere before. Well, now let's get a look at Caverns of Mars. So we've always been fascinated by life on Mars. You know, it's nearby in the galactic sense that stars are really, 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 really far away. Mars itself has sort of you know, relatable temperatures. The warmest it gets is zero Celsius, although the cold is minus a lot, you know, minus 150 Celsius or something. And as a fun fact, negative 40 Celsius and negative 40 Fahrenheit are the exact same temperature. But how fun would it have been for uh, Mars to have been habitable, you know, popping back and forth relatively easily and... I mean, it certainly would have spurred the space program even faster than it did to get to the moon. So why hasn't there been a really, really good movie about Mars yet? You know, Mission to Mars? No. Red Planet? No. Mars Attacks? Nah. John Carter? So I, I don't know, I probably would have liked John Carter better if they'd called it John Carter of Mars. Just put the of Mars in there, man. Total Recall is probably the best, I guess the Arnold version anyway, is probably the best Mars movie. So, but I am, however, hopeful of a new movie that's going to come out called The Martian. It's based on a book of the same name by Andy Weir, and I'll include links to this to his writings and stuff in the show notes. But it's about the struggles of a guy who gets stranded on Mars after a, a aborted Mars landing. Really, really good book. And I'm sure the movie won't be better than the book, but maybe I'm just being too cynical. So how about games? Have there been any really good games about Mars? Well, listen on to find out. Caverns of Mars by Greg Christensen. Originally published through APX and then eventually pulled into the Atari lineup and released on disc and eventually on cartridge. So this game is a vertical scrolling shooter where you descend, surprisingly, into caves on Mars and blow up stuff along the way, eventually to blow up the reactor at the bottom of the cave and escape before everything blows up. So Greg Christensen was a high school student when he wrote this in an article in the, the December 82 issue of Video Games Magazine. It says, Once upon a time, young Greg Christensen built electronic gizmos like amplifiers and sound generators from scratch. Ready to take on another challenge, he bought an Atari 800 computer with his savings. After Greg taught himself the basics of programming, he decided to have a go at designing a computer game. Six weeks later, the high school senior had developed Caverns of Mars, 
a game in which the player flies a spaceship down through the twists and turns of a cavern while battling enemy craft and blowing up fuel dumps. Why not, he thought, send the program to Atari Program Exchange in Sunnyvale, California, and see what happens. And then in in Fred Thorland's interview with Antic, episode 13, I think, he was talking about when they received Caverns of Mars in the mail, and they opened it up and they had all the employees going, come on, you gotta see this. Apparently everybody was gathered around watching this amazing game come in. So it was published through APX, and then it did so well that they wanted to... They wanted to publish it through the official Atari channels. So in 1981, Greg won an APX award, a cash prize of $3,000, and he received his first quarterly royalty check in 1982 for $18,000. Atari told him they might earn as much as $100,000 in royalties. In Chris Crawford's website, he's got a journal where he talked about his time at Atari, and he said that he thought it sold 50,000 copies, and final royalties were about $80,000. So that's pretty amazing. He bought an Atari, learned to program, developed the game in six weeks, all using the uh, assembler editor cartridge from Atari, and marketed it to APX, sold it, and made uh, quite a lot of money for 1981. So this is kind of like, compare this, the early beginnings of APX, to like the early App Store days that, where there was a, sort of this gold rush period where there wasn't that much software out there, and the people who jumped on it early really were able to make some money. Atari apparently offered him a job to do a sequel, but he went to college instead, Although he did actually develop sequels, but on his own time. He eventually went to work to, at Interplay, where he ported Battle Chess to the Atari ST, and he worked on stuff like Bard's Tale Construction Set, and porting Battle Chess and subsequent versions to the PC. So initially it was published through APX, or Apex as the official Atari term. I guess the insiders called it Apex, but... I grew up saying it as APX, and I just I have a hard time saying Apex. I just can't. I looked at it for so long in print and all the catalogs and stuff and said APX, and so it's so hard to change something once you've got that, you know, the, the first way you pronounce something. So Antic Podcast did two interviews f- with folks who ran APX. The I would recommend you listen to these out of order. I'd go with Dale Yoakum's interview in Antic episode number 14, and then go back and listen to Fred Thorland's interview in episode number 12. Because Dale Yoakum was the first guy who, who sort of, he came up with the idea of APX and developed it, and then Fred Thorland took over for him. And in another interview that Antic did, they interviewed Fernando Herrera in uh, their episode 13. He was the winner of the very first Atari Star Award, which is that big contest they had. It was a $50,000 prize pool, and he won first place for his uh, My First Alphabet program, and he used the money to set up First Star Software which published things like the Boulder Dash series and something else. Oh yeah, Spy vs. Spy, among other things. APX was great. I remember looking through their catalogs. This was in early 81. There wasn't a whole lot of stuff out there still. I didn't get my Atari till much later, but still it was fun looking at the catalogs and seeing what kind of things and sort of dreaming that I could write programs that would be sold. I think that was a, a common dream for people who wanted to program on the Atari. Like they, they, here was this avenue. You, you could find somebody who would publish your stuff that wouldn't be... You know, the barrier of entry was was smaller. This and submitting programs and stuff to magazines. APX distributed it on cassette and disc, and then later when Atari published it, they distributed it on uh, disc and cartridge. There was a manual with the Atari version, but I couldn't see that there was a manual with the APX version, or at least Atari Mania, and, and folks didn't have it. Dale Yoakum, in his interview with Antics, spoke of 
sort of the minimal documentation that they did with the APX stuff. They sort of expected things to be self-documenting. I couldn't find a copy of the APX manual. So the game is played with a joystick only, no keyboard controls, apart from select start and option, of course. So it's definitely a good candidate for a main cabinet. My emulator report, I typically play on Atari 800, the cross-platform emulator. And interestingly, the joystick didn't work using OSB. It only works using the XL ROMs, which is odd for a 1981 game, because this is obviously pre-XL. So I don't know what's going on there. On Altera, on the Windows platforms, it seems to work fine. So the start button starts the game, strangely. The select button pauses the game, and option selects the difficulty, which is novice, pilot, warrior, and commander. And basically the difficulty level chooses the number of caverns you go through. Gameplay, this is a vertical scroller. The top three quarters of the screen is your scrolling playfield, and the bottom quarter contains the score, the section number you're going through, the fuel, and a reminder of what level you're playing. It looks like it's graphics mode 7, which is the 160 by 96 mode, but because it's a scrolling game, it's probably using tiles. And as it turns out, I've read ahead in the notes for this podcast, yes indeed, it's a character graphics mode, it's Antic Mode 5. You use the joystick, it's 8-way joystick, so you're flying down into the cave, but really the background is scrolling up in your ship. If you don't touch the joystick, your ship stays in one place. But because you have the joystick control, you can move in all eight directions on the screen. But the playfield is always scrolling at a constant rate. You can't affect the rate. There's nothing you can do about that. That is the sound of inevitability. Your ship is a crescent shape with the open end, that is the pointy bits, pointing down. And you fire shots from both pointy bits at the same time. There's two bullets on the screen at once, but only one set of bullets can be on the screen at one time. So if you're in a long straight bit and you fire, you're waiting a long time for those shots to go off the bottom of the screen. Also, if one bullet hits something but the other one doesn't, you're still waiting until the second bullet either hits something or goes off the bottom of the screen. So I, I found that mechanic kind of frustrating when I was playing. You get about 10 points per second as you fly, and then you get various points as you blow up stuff. There are different caverns sort of connected together into the one main, to, into each level, but I only saw the first two stages in actual gameplay. There's a cheat to skip stages, and it's, well, it's pretty right in the manual, so I don't really feel bad about saying this, but if you press Shift-Control-Tab, you'll skip to the next stage. So there's five different stages, and you destroy various things. Uh, stage one is the, a twisty cave with stuff on the ledges and walls, so it's requiring you, that you maneuver like left and right. Then the next stage is a straight cave with rockets where the ships are flying up to you. And then the further stages you don't see until you get to or further and further caves. But there is a laser gate level, which is a kind of a twisty cave like level one, but they have these horizontal gates that, that blink on and off at various intervals. Some are random and some are predictable. There's another cave, there's another sort of standard twisty cave, but it's a space mine cave where there are these little mines. So each row in the mine section, you get these little sort of diamond-shaped mines that will stay put for a couple seconds and then it'll blink into a new position on that same horizontal row. So there's no display of movement, it just pops into place. So these are pretty difficult as well. And then the last stage is a sort of the boss level, although the boss doesn't really move, it's just a reactor that you land on and then it arms your little bomb to blow it up and then you have to reverse field and fly up out of the cave before it blows up. And there are no enemies while you're escaping. You just fly up, you know, maybe Landau Calrissian or something has come over the loudspeakers and told everybody to clear out. And I didn't get far enough in the levels to see if the laser gates are turned off or not, or if you have to navigate your way up through there. 
So it's definitely a challenging game. It's it's kind of like scramble, except it's you know at a vertical orientation. Uh, my big play tip is don't hold the fire button down because you'll especially in the rocket level you'll find that it's really difficult. You're just the rockets move fast enough that it's hard to it's hard to wait if you if you've missed a shot and your shots have to go off the end of the screen. I found that I'd have to conserve my my shots until I really needed them and then shoot stuff as it's when it was pretty close by. Your shots are also shot stopped by debris clouds. The debris clouds don't actually go away. You can fly through them, but your shots are stopped by them. I actually found a bug several times in the rockets level when I'd shoot a fuel ship that was very close to my own ship. It would change to an explosion graphic, but then when my ship tried to go through it, it would change back to a fuel ship and I'd crash. And I think, looking into the technical stuff, I think I may have found a reason for that. So, if we to look at the technical details for a little bit, it's a vertical scrolling game, and so looking at the display list, we see that it is using mode 5, which is a, it's a 40 by 12, 40 column by 12 row mode, where each tile is 4 pixels across, and, will that be 16 scan lines? So each pixel is sort of a graphic 7 style square block. And graphic 7 is 160 by 96. Your ship is a double-width player, and so 8-player missile bits is 16 color clocks, which is 32 high-res pixels. So we haven't really talked about color clocks before. Color clocks are the smallest horizontal unit where you had full control of the color. And because of NTSC, I guess the the way the chroma and luma, I don't know exactly the technical details there, but there's 320 pixels in the high-res graphics 8. But you need to have two pixels side-by-side side to have full control of the color. Otherwise, you get this artifacting where a single graphics 8 pixel can be a different color, and it's only when you get two next to each other that you get white or whatever color you're using for graphics 8. So that's called artifacting. So in order to avoid artifacting, they needed to design modes that had two pixels next to each other. So the way they did that was they made these other graphics modes that were multiples of two high-res pixels in order for each logical pixel then to have full control of its color. So that means the graphics modes that, that had full control of their color were at most 160 pixels wide on the screen. Sort of later on, the mode they'd use most would be the, or well, the 160 by 192 graphics 7+. plus. But in this case, it's the 160 by 96 graphics 7 style mode. So those are, those are square pixels where each pixel is two high-res pixels wide and two scan lines tall. In terms of the memory layout, that means there are four pixels per byte. And if there's 160 pixels in the row, that means there's 40 bytes per line. And that's the most memory a graphics mode in the Atari used, was 40 bytes per line. Something we also haven't talked about before is that Antic, in order to conserve memory, or to allow you to conserve memory if you needed to, they had the option of using a narrow playfield, a normal playfield, or a wide playfield. So that means for each line in the graphics mode, if you you could tell it to use a narrow playfield and it would only use 32 bytes per line instead of the normal 40 bytes per line. A wide playfield would actually use 48 bytes per line, and the number of pixels would increase, so you get into the over overscan area if you're using a wide playfield. The narrow playfield then would sort of shrink the usable area to the more towards the center of the screen, and it would leave you larger borders on the left and right, and that's what he did here. He used a narrow playfield, which is 32, 32 bytes, which would be four color clocks per byte, or 128 color clocks wide, which is less than the normal 160 color clocks in the normal playfield. So in this case, using Antic Mode 5, there's 32 Antic Mode 5 characters. Each is four color clocks wide and eight pixels tall. 
But because this is ending mode 5, the each pixel is two scan lines tall, so each character is 16 scan lines high. So again, it's the character equivalent of graphics 7, which is the 160 by 96 mode. Each enemy ship is two or three characters wide. Now, I sort of thought when creating scrolling games, you'd kind of you'd make a big, tall playfield, so you kind of have the whole playfield in memory, and then you'd you just sort of move this window down. You know, if you can imagine like a line sheet of college-ruled paper or something, and you have an index card as your as the window, like like that's your screen, and the and the college-ruled paper is your big scrolling playfield, all in memory that you're index card would sort of move down the paper and you'd see the new stuff appear on the bottom as the card moved down. But looking at the, at the display list, he's actually rewriting the display list every 60th of a second so that he's pointing to individual lines of characters. He's kind of made this virtual playfield, so it doesn't take up so much memory. He's making the playfield on demand as he needs it. But I think this may be what is causing the bug that I saw where the when the fuel ship would re- sort of reappear. I think it's the you know, he's sort of mixing and matching these these horizontal rows to create the appearance of the cavern moving up. And so I think there's times, we, there's obviously times when he has to use the same definition for a row in multiple places. So I think it may be that he's using the definition of a row, and as that scrolls up, it happens that another row that is exactly the same hits the bottom at this at while that new one is still up top. And because I think it's using the same memory address, it reappears on the bottom as a new undestroyed ship. Which, because they're using the same memory address for both, I think it sort of undestroys that ship that I had previously destroyed. I don't know if this is making any sense. The point being is he doesn't create this huge scrolling playfield in memory. He sort of mixes and matches as he needs it. And then he reuses some of the, the rows. So this game is notable to me because this is the very first game I ever saw on the Atari 8-bits. So this is probably in early 82. I was in a library... And I convinced my parents to take me there because I knew they were having this computer event. It must have been a users group. I don't. I actually don't remember what it was, but it must have been either a users group or a demo or something. You know, like the Atari party that that Bill Kendrick does nowadays. Because there was a bunch of Atari set up, and this I remember really clearly. This game was being played on sort of the main, the central computer that was had had the bigger monitor. I think I must have seen Scramble in the arcades already. You know, even though the Scramble is sort of a horizontal scrolling game and this is vertical, but still, I was amazed that this home computer could do this. And that game stuck with me, and I think is really what sort of convinced me to get the Atari 8-bits, or to, to push for that one, because I remember I was considering sort of the... Well, the Apple II was out of my price range, but I was considering the TI-99-4A, but then sort of this, this the memory of this game in particular convinced me that it was the one to get over the TI-99-4A. I remember playing it a lot after I got my Atari, but, you know, of course I didn't get my Atari till 83, so another year, there was another couple years worth of games, and so it didn't sort of keep my memory, keep my attention as long as I might have thought it would. You know, had I got the computer a couple years before, I think it would have been, I would have played a lot more. I don't remember being being very good back then. Of course, I really wasn't very good at games anyway, but playing it today, well, I can tell you for sure what my minimum score is. When your joystick doesn't work, you will get 690 points. I got that score many times, trying to figure out what was wrong with Atari 800, finally figuring out that I needed the XL ROM. So when I actually got it to work, I, my high score was 34,530. And I got through the first base on Novice and into the second base. And then I played a couple on pilot mode just to see what it was like, and I didn't get a higher score. The Atari Age High Score Club obviously obliterates my scores as usual. The user DevWebCL got 842,000 when they played it in uh, High Score Club number 10, round 4. There were several updates all by Greg Christensen. He did Caverns of Mars 2, which is a horizontal scrolling game, much more scramble-like, and also very hard because you only have lasers and you don't have bombs. 
So as you're flying along horizontally and these rockets and stuff launch up to intercept you, it's difficult to hit them without without getting low enough that you don't crash into some mountains and stuff. The same game was also released as Mars Mission 2 by Antic Software. Antic Software took over distribution of some, some APX titles when Atari closed down APX. And there's a game called Phobos, which is sort of a, re- a rewrite of the original Caverns of Mars, again by Greg Christensen, which has improved gameplay and graphics. Your little ship has an animated flames coming out of the bottom, it's, which is really a, a nice graphical touch. And the thing I like best about Phobos is that you alternate shots, and you're not limited to having that one set of shots on the screen at once. So you can fire as often as you want, and it alternates sides. Additionally, it's kind of set up like uh, Moon Patrol, where you have a bunch more little checkpoints. So instead of having to go back to the start of a stage after you die, you go to the checkpoint, which is much closer, so you don't have to repeat a lot of the same stuff. So all in all, I thought Caverns of Mars was an important game. The collision detection is not very forgiving. I mean, it's good. I mean, it, it's it's legitimate, but it's very, very tight. I think I actually like Phobos a bit better, and probably I'd end up playing Phobos more than Caverns of Mars. So that's it for this episode. Next episode, we're going to look at the magazines of February 1981 and the game Jawbreaker by Online Systems, which later became Sierra Online. Thanks again to Mike DeShane for the interview. Had a great time talking with him. If you're in the Worcester area, be sure to stop by Master Hobbies for all your hobby supply needs. Also, big thanks to Rob O'Hara and everybody at the Throwback Network. Be sure to check out the Throwback Network for all your retro podcasting needs. Let's close out with some pokey music. I thought this outro music was apropos, perhaps ironically so, considering that the planet Mars has no magnetosphere. This sap track was created by Irenish Kuchek, a version of Magnetic Fields Part 2 by Jean-Michel Jarre.
Even practicing that, I still tried to say John Michael Jarre. That's two and a half years of high school French, baby. Yeah.